0: Uh, If you're just joining us, that's what we preach here. We don't preach uh, self-help and good a man encouragement. Uh, We uh, preach the Word of God, believing that it's true and good, and it's every source of life. So I hope you're ready to rock and roll tonight. I want to begin, though, with a question, if I could. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by how unpredictable your life is? Have you ever felt overwhelmed by how unpredictable your life is? In other words... um, Just take today, for example. Uh, Take all the conversations that you've had today uh, through its various forms, right? Email and text and, uh, God forbid, the phone call, right? And and then, oh, and maybe a face-to-face interaction that you had. Take all of those. Take all the things that your senses were attuned to, your smell, your sight, your sound, your touch, and I don't know if there's other senses, but... Take all the interactions at the grocery stores or the work uh, times that you had or the projects you did. Take all of those things that literally made up your entire day today and I want to ask you this. Could you have predicted any of those yesterday? So yesterday, would you have thought, oh yeah, I would have had this conversation through text and this person would have responded that way and I know for sure that I would have felt like this when they texted me too. What percentage of it would you have predicted? It's interesting, isn't it, how much and how many variables there are in our life. I mean, literally, as this life is unfolding, it's like choose your own adventure constantly. I mean, we don't know the end, and there's all of this stuff that's just happening and unfolding. There's so many variables, and I want to ask you this. With the unpredictability of our life and with all of its variables, does it ever get to you? Does it ever make you short? Ever make you angry? Every ever, ever make you frustrated, because things don't quite go how they're. And I'll put this loosely in quotations how they're supposed to, right? And sometimes it's small things. Um, a couple days ago, I went into Quick Trip, the best a gas station on the face of the planet, and a Mathai, a specifically sponsor Mathai sponsors Quick Trip. Um, I probably need to check with the other elders on that before I make that statement. So I'll pull that back. Um, but I went in, as I normally do, uh, two to three or f- sometimes four times a day, to uh, get myself a sodi. Now, uh, I'm really excited about the new addition at the Quick Trips, the Styrofoam cup, right? Any, any, the rest of you excited about these things? Some of you don't like them. I uh, personally am obsessed with them. So I go and grab my Styrofoam cup, and I place it under the uh, crushed ice dispenser. Anyone still doing the cube stuff? Yeah. If you- Few of you guys, all right? Repent and repent and right, but the the crushed ice, like that stuff, is where it's at. So I put my cup under there, and I go to put my cup underneath the Diet Coke dispenser, the glorious Diet Coke dispenser, right? And it knows me by name because I've seen it many times. And, and there, and maybe you've been to Quick Trip and you've seen this. There was a little red sign underneath the dispenser, and it said "Out of Service." Now. There's these like these really seemingly simple moments in your life, but sometimes in those moments don't you like I, I literally had this moment of rage in me <laughs> where I wanted to take this styrofoam cup, and literally I, I've had this three second moment in my mind take this styrofoam cup and just just throw the ice through the restaurant and be like, Are you serious? Is anyone working around here? Fix the Diet Coke, you know? Let's figure this thing out. I mean it's one of many. Let's do this. Right? So so sometimes like you just notice your like anger or your tenseness or your frustration just coming out in idiotic times like that, right? I would say maybe not so idiotic, but anyway. Um but then sometimes it comes out in more serious moments. My wife and I are discussing finances a few days ago. That's never a hot topic in a marriage. And um, and we're discussing and talking, discussing and talking, and um, I just like find myself getting short and frustrated because some things, some decisions we're making, like aren't like working how they're supposed to. I wonder, like, how many of these variables and how much of life's unpredictability is just weighing down on you tonight. Like how many of you had this dream of your life of how it was supposed to be or supposed to go and some of the things just aren't quite going as you had planned and you walk in here tonight just completely burdened. I want to encourage you with this. Just as we're getting going, God has deeply impacted me with this passage because I have longed to figure out how to not let life rob me of life. I have longed to find the answer consistently on how my life and my circumstances don't rob me of life and I know some of you feel like it has right now no joy constant burden and you feel like life is just being sucked out of you if you feel like that now or you've ever felt like that before I'm telling you tonight our journey through the text not only answers this question in a powerful way but makes it so crystal clear all of us have the opportunity to walk out of here changed. So to the burden, to the confused, to the joyous, no matter where you're at tonight, let's take a journey. And where we ended last week was this slide. Go ahead and put up my hope slide here for me. We ended last week looking at how the power of Christ and what Christ has done allows us to draw near to God. And I shared with you last week that these eight things are just some of the aspects, the blessings of what Christ has done in allowing us to be in close proximity to Father God. So things like we hear His voice through the Scripture, we see new aspects of His character continually, we're experiencing the power that He has, we become very aware of our sin, all of these things. So I ask you for those that were here last week, or for those just joining us, how near do you feel tonight? Do you feel in close proximity... With a great God who through His Son is allowing you to be near. Do you feel near? Nearer than last week? And at that question, like some of you just instantly feel this heap of condemnation on you. And I just want to encourage you with this. This list last week and our topic tonight of what Christ has done is in no way intended to make you continually feel condemned, but rather to give you the hope That is found in Christ. So matter whether you feel like just so interconnected with Father God or you walked in here tonight feeling so disconnected, let me tell you this. His grace is still sufficient. Not just last week when we learned this, but it's still. His mercies are new today, the Bible says. So let's rock and roll here. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. I want to read uh, this passage as, as we've been doing here recently in its entirety. And then as we do, we'll break it down verse by verse. And I'm really, really excited to see what God might do here in His sovereignty. Let's start here in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath... By the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Verse 24. But he holds the priesthood permanently Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need. Like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself, the law appoints men in their weaknesses, high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is one of those passages where I feel like I could just say, have a great one. We'll see you next week. Just powerful, powerful text. So let's start here in verse 20. And it was not without an oath. Well, what is he talking about? In verse 19, we saw what Jesus does. Because of Jesus, Jesus allows us to be in close proximity to God. So continuing that thought, he says, We have that proximity, and who Jesus is comes not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. Well, how are they made priests? We've been studying this week after week. They're made priests because of what? Because of genealogy. Their connection with Aaron as the first high priest, and then every piece of the Levitical tribe after that. That's where all the priests come from. So these former priests were made such without an oath, but this what? What's the word there in verse 21? But this what? But this one, not many, one. But this one was made a priest with an oath, By the one who said to him, and again quoting Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn for the fourth time here in Hebrews and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Now let me explain what's happening here. Uh, So uh, I don't know how many of you have people in your life that you don't trust a word that they say. Do you have any of these these folks, right? And we begin shouting their names out. That would be bad. Now, we all have have these people where, where as they're talking where it's like, that's not true, that's not true, you're embellishing that, that makes no sense, you're, you know. And you're not even really listening. You're just like, you're giving them the the courteous, you know, oh, yeah, mm -hmm, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm not. No, you're an idiot, right? Now, there's also those people in your life, listen, that you trust every single word that they say. You have those people? I mean, they could could walk out right now and say the sky is purple. And you'd be like, oh, right on. I, you know, 100% believe you. I mean, just, it doesn't, whatever they say, you just trust it. Now, every once in a while, those people that you trust dearly They want you to get a point so crystal clearly that they still swear by what they say. They're literally the most integrity-filled, trustworthy people. And every once in a while, listen, every once in a while, even those people will say, listen, I swear to you, and then they'll say the statement. And don't you, like me, when the most trustworthy person in your life says, I swear to you, don't you give a little bit of a lean-in? You're like, whoa, 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 this must be legit. If this person, the most trustworthy person, is saying something like, I swear to you, then whatever he's about to say must have tremendous impact. You see what I'm saying? That's exactly what God is doing here in swearing by his son Jesus that he would be a priest forever. He's already said in chapter 6, verse 18, that it's impossible for God to lie. God, very trustworthy, he cannot lie, it's impossible. But now he escalates the fact that God swears by Jesus being a priest forever. It's as if the most trustworthy person in your lifetimes, God, is saying, Come on, lean in. What I'm about to say holds so much value that if you miss it, you will miss everything. Though every word of mine is true and right and good and worthy of being trusted, you must hear this. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. <laughs> you, you follow me? God, writing through man. Listen, God swears this is true, and then he says, verse 22, this, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, I can't begin to describe to you the weightiness of this verse. So, often we lose the language I'm not sure if you're aware, but the Bible wasn't written in English originally. Uh, This may be news to some of you. Um, However, uh, it was written in a couple different languages, primarily a Hebrew in the Old Testament, uh, plus some Aramaic, and Greek in the New Testament. Now, it's important, especially in our context tonight, to understand what some of these words mean in the Greek because they become so much more beautiful. So can we? Real quick, you'll be Greek scholars here. Um, The first word, guarantor, which is just a weird word, Um, The Greek word is inguros, and it means this. Next slide. It means a surety or a sponsor. It it could mean like a bond servant. In in the way that we talk, it could mean someone who who literally like pays for bond for someone who's in jail. They're representing them. a, A surety, a sponsor. Okay? That's what guarantor means. Now, the word better, next slide, is a cry tone or cray tone pronounced. Look at this. It means more useful and better than the standard. So so Jesus comes, and what Jesus does is he is the guarantor of a covenant, of a bond. And we're going to spend all next chapter talking about covenant, of something that's more useful, something that's more beneficial. Now, this word guarantee has weird connotations for us, and it doesn't even compute because most of you, you like, you think of a store like warranty or guarantee, and don't th- don't 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 those just make you angry, you know? Like, you, have you ever been to Best Buy, right, and use you know use dropped whatever a couple hundred on some rock and sound system or whatever, in your context, and then they try to like sell you this guarantee, and then they hand you literally like a sixteen page document about it, and what you realize is there's all these exemptions. Well, I had this experience. A a, a few weeks ago, I bought this sound system because we own a DJ company, uh, which is kind of fun. We like to DJ weddings and have fun. I don't do any DJing, but uh, one of my speakers blew. Like, it completely went out. But guess what? I had bought the warranty. I bought the guarantee, right? They had sold me. I was like, yeah, right on. So I call the person, and then I get transferred six times, right? And then finally, I speak to a human being, and, and they tell me, okay, so here's what you need to do. You need to write down the serial number, and then you need to call this number, and then you're going to give them the serial number, and then they're going to give you the model number, and then you're going to call this person, and then they're going to track down the model number, and they're going to have to go to UPS. You're going to have to become best friends with that person because they won't ship it unless you are. And then they're going to, like, it was literally this 10-page process. So I walk away, like, realizing there's really no guarantee on this thing, right? Like, there is no warranty. They've just sold me something. I'm thinking of a movie now, Tommy Boy. They've sold me something, right? (laughs) That really has no guarantee at all. You see what I'm saying? Listen, listen, that's why, that's why it's so difficult for us to understand the depth of this verse. That Christ is the surety, the sponsor of a better covenant, of a covenant, of a bond that is more useful more significant than the old he's not devaluing the old he's just putting the old in perspective that's what jesus does so here here's his philosophy i'm going to draw you in so that you'll hear this statement but then it's as if this he understands how difficult it will be for his hearers to get this because he believes if they get this it changes everything and that's my whole contention tonight Literally, if you get verse 22, my proposal to you is that everything changes, everything. That Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. If you understand that, then my friends, so he knows his readers are going to have difficulty computing. And so he's going to go on to prove himself. So he says this in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So what he's doing is he's showing how Jesus as the high priest is superior to every other high priest after him. Now, the first high priest is, anyone? Aaron, okay, well done. Now, Aaron, the first high priest, eventually gets old and is gonna die. Just like this verse is saying, they're prevented from continuing office by death. So guess what happens? God tells Moses and Aaron... To go up with Aaron's son on Mount Hor. They go up on the mountain. Listen to this. This is somewhat humiliating for a high priest. But it shows you the human high priestly office. God tells Moses to strip Aaron of his high priestly garments. Strip him of them. And then put them on his son right in front of them. Now some may think that's a place of honor. To me that would be somewhat humiliating. I've held this office. I was the first high priest. My name is Aaron. Aaron. And you're going to take me on this mountain, strip me of my clothes, and then put them on my son right in front of me. And that's exactly what happens. Moses strips Aaron, puts the clothes on his son, and the Bible says up there on the mountain, Aaron dies. Every high priest leading up to the true, deep, real high priest in Jesus either dies or their office is discontinued. He's showing the distance and the disconnect between the true high priest and Jesus and all these other humans. Now, he extenuates it here in verse 24. Check this out. But he, speaking of Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he, what's the word? Continues forever. Now, this verse has messed me up, okay? Okay. Now look at this. The Greek word for continues, please, please, please see this is meno. Now this will be one of the easiest Greek words you'll ever have a chance to say. Okay, so like this is where you like you throw it in with your friends, you know. So I was reading the Greek the other day, and this word meno came up, right? Like it just because you can say it, right? Here's what it means. It means remain. His office is permanent. His office and this word has just gripped my heart and my mind. It remains. It's steady. It's stable. It's not going anywhere. Now, every other priest before him will die, but not him. Let me show you what I mean. Next slide. You have high priest after high priest after high priest after high priest after high priest. priest. And every human high priest needs another human high priest after him. But then you get to Jesus. And listen, there's no more need. He's the end of the line. He's the last high priest needed. There's not any other priest. The image that I see here is that the work of Jesus is final. You remember on the cross what Jesus says? In John 19, the writer records Jesus saying three of the greatest words in the human understanding of the Bible. It is finished. Well, what's finished? All of this. The whole system. Everything that we've been waiting on. Sacrifice, atonement, forgiveness of sins. It's done. I'll come out of the tomb in three days. Show I can conquer death. And all this is over. It's finished. It's done with. Now, I believe, and I'm going to get to it later tonight, I believe that this is where all of us, including myself, are taking the power of the gospel and at times we're spitting in its face. What we're living like is high priest, high priest, high priest. Here comes Jesus, high priest, high priest, high priest. We're really not believing that what Jesus has done, his work, is completely final. What we're believing is just he played a part and not the part. We think that he just fits into the story, allows us to have forgiveness of sins. It feels really like a nice Christmas present instead of being the whole focal point of the story. Every high priest leading to him, and when he comes, there's no other need. You see what I'm saying? He says his office remains. Don't you love that? Listen, for me, there's times in the Bible where I just, I just get so stinking encouraged by the words and what they mean and the depth of it. I could say that all night long. Like, he remains. He's not going anywhere. He's the sure foundation, the steady rock. You want to build something, you build it on him. That's why the scripture calls him the cornerstone. Are you with me? Now, let's keep going. Look at this. Look at this. Next slide. Verse 25. Consequently, he is then, because his high priestly office is permanent, he is then able to save to the uttermost. And the uttermost here literally means completely and at all times. He's able to save completely and at all times those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. This is what Jesus does. This is His office. This is His action. He is able to save to the uttermost, completely at all times. Now, I want to say this to you. I wonder how many of you really, truly, have grasped in your heart and your mind the fact that Jesus being a permanent priest literally means at any point and every point you have access, complete access to God. The very thing that you will ever need is completely accomplished in the final work of the Lord. And so at any point, Any chaos that comes, any tragedy that arises, any joy you celebrate, I can go to God. I will go to God. I should go to God. And I can go to God. And this is what no one in the Old Testament could ever say. I can go to God. And what we do is we turn it on its head a bit. We say things like, I have to go to God. See what I'm saying? We change the I can and we say I have to. We add a religion system On top of our approach to God, still believing that somehow, maybe even we've become the intercessor to God. Instead of I can go to God, we say things like I have to, because if not, then this person's going to be angry with me because I'm supposed to be living the Christian life. Let's be real. I know you'd never say that, right? Because that would just be humiliating. But you think it, don't you? that if I don't serve and do this, if I don't participate in this Christian thing, that all my friends that are believers, they're going to look at me and they're going to wonder in their mind, what's going on with me? Am I disconnecting? Am I falling away? Am I not drawing near? And so your motivation to draw near is not because of your access, but it's because others are saying you should go. When you understand that you have access to God, a true understanding you are believing in the depth of your heart that you can because he's constantly and permanently and remaining in that intercessor role. See what I'm saying? The Old Testament folks, they couldn't say that. They couldn't say I can go. Verse 26 says this. For it was indeed fitting that we should have. Now, just let this verse speak for a moment, shall we? That we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Okay, this is the one that, this is a verse that a worship tune should just be written about. You know, like this is, this is that powerful, powerful text. Now let's break these down. Holy, first. Uh, Hasias. Hasias is the Greek word. And it means free from crime, free from guilt, and pure. There's other forms of holy in the scripture. But in this verse, when the Bible describes Jesus as holy, pure, free from guilt, completely beautiful. Next, innocent. Innocent, uh, the Greek word is hakakos. I told you these words get harder. And it literally means just, just void of evil. He's innocent. There is no evil in Jesus. He is completely innocent, completely holy. Next, a Greek word is amayantos. And it literally means this, unstained. It just means undefiled. What's his point? if he's making a comparison between every human high priest and Jesus, what is he saying? They're not holy. They're not innocent. They're not unstained. They don't sit exalted above the heavens. They're not. Every human falls completely short of all of these things. What Jesus has done in being the guarantor of a better covenant is the work now completely and fully rests on him and not on man. And when it rested on man, it rested on unholy, stained, blemished, and defiled men. That's his point. But not Jesus. Jesus sits as holy, as innocent, as undefiled, and it makes his sacrifice, or should make his sacrifice, all that more of a blessing that this innocent, holy, guiltless man, who's also God, Goes to the cross for you. Does that not show you his love? Undeserving completely of everything that he would ever have. And he's exalted above the heavens. Verse 27, because of that then, he has no need. Like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Let me explain what's happening here. Earlier in Hebrews, we saw that Jesus... Is like the other high priests, so that he's able to what? You guys remember? So that he's able to what? To sympathize, right? He's like those who he's representing, like the human high priest, so that when he's making intercession for you, he knows what it was like to be tempted. Is that not encouraging to anyone else? You do not have and serve a God who is making representation for you to God who doesn't understand. You have a God, humbled himself, came to earth, knows full well what it it looks like, way beyond what you could ever understand or bear, what it looks like to be tempted and yet remained perfect. So he was like the high priest in that way. He could sympathize. But this is saying he was unlike them in a whole other way. He had some similarities, but some differences. And the fact that every high priest in the Old Testament, they had to go on the Day of Atonement. There was this massive cleansing process. They had to make sure before they sacrificed anything that they were completely cleansed. Not Jesus. He willingly is crucified and makes a willing sacrifice once for all. It's a self-sacrifice, not the sacrifice of an animal. Why? Because... Because he was the spotless, unblemished lamb. And every Passover in the ancient tradition, that's what would have to be sacrificed. And that's why it's so important that Jesus is sinless. He has to become that spotless, perfect lamb. And he is. Then in verse 28, we see this. He's made his point. He said, look, this Jesus office and these human office high priests They're completely different. Jesus is the better, the guarantor of a better covenant. And then he closes and summarizes with this. Verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Man, human, defiled, not holy, blemished and now a son who's perfect forever and i sit back and i look at this text as a whole and i think about jesus being the better guarantor of a better covenant the strong the sure i have to wonder some things now first of all my life gets so easily overwhelmed Like the smallest things, the large things, the things that are just unraveling, that happen. I'm so easily frustrated, at times so easily angered, at times so easily frazzled, so easily burdened and overwhelmed. I'm not sure if you can relate. Listen to this. I allow the things that are insignificant and that don't remain and that are unpredictable to outweigh the one thing that's predictable. The whole point of this passage is that Jesus remains. There's nothing else. It's the thing that's predictable. In a world of unpredictability, in a world where only God is sovereign and all of our lives are just unraveling before us, there is one hope. He's already victorious. The battle has already been fought. Your sin is already paid for. There's nothing else. It's done. He said it's finished. You see what I'm saying? So if it is finished, then why would I ever let, why would I ever let the things that I can't control, the things that are unpredictable, to outweigh the thing that is predictable and to outweigh the thing that does remain? Let me show you what I mean. I think we see our existence like this. And the gospel is just filling gaps. Oh, oh! thank you, Jesus. You're convenient for this gap and this hole that I need it uh, even like you give me relationships I go to church and I meet people that's great thank you Jesus for that that's really nice of you I I I'm so so thankful for that I, I mean you get the semblance of relationships that many people in the world don't and the gospel just keeps filling gaps and the gospel for you has just become this convenient thing that you fit into your existence what the writer was trying to un- understand and get his readers to grasp is the gospel is what drives your existence When you see your existence and your perspective through the lens of the gospel and not the other way around, then my proposal to you, and this has messed me up, it changes everything. I really believe if Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, then why am I getting so frazzled? Why am I so angry at times? Why am I so frustrated? Why does this life seem so overwhelming if the battle's already done If if it's completely finalized in Jesus, if the work is over, if he's going to walk out and he's going to take his church back, then why am I living like it's not done? Why am I living like he's not the high priest? Why do I let the smallest things irk me? And you know what it causes then? Is we just all lose joy. I have to believe From what I see in the scripture, when Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life to the full, I have to believe this is the bedrock teaching. He's the guarantor of a better covenant. He remains. He's not going anywhere. So, stop letting your frazzled, seeming existence seem so important and start just trusting that He really has done all of the work. I just look at my own life and I wonder if you do the same. And I'm just like, I'm I'm letting life rob me of life and I'm tired of that I'm done with that I can't like like little I can't let little drama in the human world drive me anymore I can't let like all these little frazzlings or what people say or what people think that I'm doing I can't I have to stop letting that bother me so much I have to stop getting caught up I only have so much time on this earth and if Jesus's work is finalized then I need to focus on the thing that matters and not on all of these unpredictable insignificant things I need to focus on the one thing that's predictable the one thing that I know to be sure and so I'm just telling you what I believe this teaching is about changes everything for you and for me no more getting so easily frazzled and 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 so easily angered and so easily frustrated when things don't go like they're supposed to he's in control he holds this universe in his hands He will achieve his glory. And whatever it means for your life and for mine, come tragedy or joy, I say bring it on because I have the sure hope that he will come back, he will take his church, and that outweighs everything. It outweighs everything. I'm ready for the church to live in that joy. Somebody call me crazy. It seems like that's the message of the Bible. When Jesus said, here, I've come to give you a way different kind of life, it has to start here. With the person of Christ being the guarantor of a better covenant. It changes everything. And so the little conversations with my wife that can sometimes get under my skin. I just sit and I thank God that he's blessed me with my wife. And we still have the conversation and we wrestle through. But at the end of it I leave in hope and joy. And as I drive around in the day and I start thinking about all the chaos of the world and how disconnected things seem, you know what? I don't let that get to me because of what Christ has already done. We're already victorious. I'm already celebrating. So this life becomes one huge celebration, even amidst the trial. I'm just tired of living the other way, it's wearing me out. You too? I die tomorrow if all this is gone I don't want to say I spent my last hours dealing with drama on this level I want to say I was experiencing the bounty of God's grace and I have to believe I have to believe that when Jesus took the bread you understand what he was saying you're saying, my body's going to be broken here on the cross. My blood's going to shed. But guess what? I remain. No more sacrifice is done. Once for all. This is it. Here it is. Your whole existence, everything, is now completely fulfilled in Christ. You don't have to hope or wait on anything else. The waiting's done. So he said, take and eat. And remember, when you take and eat, remember that I remain. And then he holds up the cup. Now does this make this word sound a little bit more powerful when he says this cup represents the blood of the new covenant, right? Covenant, the new covenant, the guarantor of a better covenant. So he says take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, will you stand with me, please? Mm -hmm. Though you remain uh, faithless, Christ remains. Though the world around you seems to crumble before your eyes, Christ remains. Though you encounter trials that seem unimaginable, that hurt so deep, that seem to dig into your very being, that cause so much confusion, Christ remains. Though everyone near to you deserts you in a time of need, they're gone, they're nowhere to be found, Christ remains. And though you sit like many of you do tonight, helpless and hopeless, Christ remains. Tonight we take this meal, which is for believers, those who say, I am trusting with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength that He does remain. As you come and you pull off a piece of this bread and you dip it in the cup, this walk and this meal is your chance to give thanks and to believe anew that he remains. let respond when you're ready.